0: I want you. I want you to think about the worst sinners imaginable. Just the worst of the worst, the vilest of sinners, and you look, maybe look at the list on the screen. And you think, "Yep, that's it. That's that's one." I I, I recognize that. Yeah, I I would say uh, the most vile, reprehensible sinners. Yeah, I think of the, the people that. You wouldn't want in your church People you would say I don't want them in my church. I wouldn't want to share a pew With somebody who did this. I wouldn't want to share my pew with someone who does that I want to I don't want to share uh, the same space on a Sunday morning with somebody who's got this sin in their life And you just think about the the most vile reprehensible sinners. Maybe it's it's people who abuse children uh, or, or pedophiles Nope, don't want them in my church. Perhaps it's people who are verbally or psychologically or physically abusive to their spouses. That's been in the news a lot. If you've had your TV on, NFL players, right? Seen a lot of that in the headlines lately. Maybe it's serial killers who commit violent crimes. Now, i got to be honest, you know, serial killers. If you're a serial killer, you know, turn yourself in, okay? All right? That's a scary one. But, uh, you know, serial killers are people who commit violent crimes uh, Traitors, maybe people who commit treason and, and either betray their friends or betray their country um, People who, you know, you just, nope, I don't want don't to share a pee with them Maybe it's greedy thieves who bilk people uh, out of their retirement savings in order to get rich We've seen that in the news the last few years Perhaps it's somebody of a different political persuasion than you you know, I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want to sit next to a Democrat in church. I wouldn't want to sit next to a Republican in church. I wouldn't want to sit next to an Independent Moderate in church. I wouldn't want to sit next to somebody who doesn't care in church. Somebody of a different lifestyle. Someone of a different religious heritage. Well, I wouldn't want that person in my church. I wouldn't want them. They go to that church, or they grew up this, or they grew up that, or they, go to the, they belong to this religion. I, I wouldn't want them in my church. Perhaps it's somebody of a different sexual orientation somebody of a different lifestyle, somebody who's got addictions. Maybe you say, I I don't want somebody who's got those addictions in my church. Whether they're addicted to pornography or addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs, I I don't know that I want them in my church. And so, you, you know, there are people, when we face it, when we face facts, there are people in this world that we think about and we look at and we say, or we hear about and we say, I just don't think I'd be very comfortable with that person In my church. And you may say, I I don't think that Jesus would be very comfortable hanging out with those people. I I don't think Jesus would want to hang out with them. Uh, I I don't think Jesus would want to spend time with them. And according to Luke 15, you would be wrong. You would be wrong. In Luke chapter 15, we see that the religious leaders around Jesus... ...were noticing something about him. And they weren't very happy with him. They noticed something about Jesus. That he was spending time with people... ...that they didn't approve of necessarily. He was spending time with people... ...that were considered the wrong crowd. And not only was he spending time with them... ...but he befriended them. He attracted the wrong crowd... And he befriended them. People such as tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. They were considered his friends. They were the friends of Jesus. And that's how they made fun of him. They they mocked Jesus by saying, look at these people that he's hanging out with. He's a friend of sinners. That's who Jesus hung out with. That's who Jesus spent time with. That's who Jesus ate with and dined with and talked with and and spent time with. The religious elite would stand at a distance and they would mutter to themselves, as it says in Luke 15, they muttered to themselves, he welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Who does this guy think he is? Why is he hanging about with these horrible people? You know what? I know what's going on. He's telling them the things that they want to hear. He's not calling them to change. He's not calling them to repent. He's just telling them the things that they want to hear. And they didn't want anything to do with them. They didn't want anything to do with these sinners and these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these sinners that they couldn't stand. And so that's exactly what they did. They muttered to themselves, And they said, He welcomes sinners. Grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 15, because that's where we're going to be today. We're going to look at Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. And also grab your bulletin and turn to page 3 to the handy-dandy outline. Because this morning we're going to begin a brand new sermon series on the book, The Prodigal God, by Timothy Keller. And this book is uh, the basis of our Bible studies that we're doing right now at church. And like I said earlier, if you're interested in joining this Bible study but you missed the first session, we're going to offer that at 1 o'clock today. You can go home and grab some lunch, come back, and at 1 o'clock we're going to watch the video again. And we'd love for you to come join us for that if you're able to make it. Um, This Bible study series started this past week. We've had dozens of our church members, over 80 people, come and, and join in for Bible study this week. Uh, I know I learned a lot about the parable of the prodigal son from watching the video and and, and the discussion that we had and so like I said if you missed the first session we're going to have that encore presentation today at one o'clock and then you can join in one of our Bible studies this week. Uh, it's not too late to join a Bible study if you watch the first video um, and uh, we're going to have uh, I think the list of Bible studies is in your bulletin uh, and you can figure out which one works best for you to join. Um, but we're looking at at three parables in the book of Luke. In chapter 15, there's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. And the parable of the prodigal son is probably, uh, if not the most famous of Jesus' parables, it's probably uh, one of the most famous of Jesus' parables. Uh, Everyone knows that one and the Good Samaritan. Um, But Jesus, in the parables in Luke 15, challenges his listeners' fundamental assumptions about God sin and salvation and he gives them an entirely new way of thinking about god themselves and the whole world today we're looking at the very first two parables in luke 15 the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and we're going to talk about what these parables mean and we're going to see three sets of characters in today's parables that we're going to look at three sets of characters now the first blank on your outline Is the unwilling listeners Those are the first characters The unwilling listeners Look at Luke 15 verses 1 through 3 Now the tax collectors and sinners Were all gathering around to hear him But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered This man welcomes sinners and eats with them And then Jesus told them this parable So you've got two groups of people You've got The sinners and the tax collectors on one side. And you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on the other. Let's kind of talk about these guys for just a second. The tax collectors. The tax collectors were social and religious outcasts from their society. The tax collectors were hated. Uh, They were viewed as immoral. They were viewed as dishonest. Um, They were outcasts. Uh, Their occupation was not highly looked upon. They were viewed... Uh, tax collectors were viewed pretty much the same way we view tax collectors. It's like, not, you know, nobody goes into tax collecting going, I hope everybody loves me. Working for the IRS? No. In fact, in Jesus' day, the tax collectors were seen as traitors of the worst sort. The tax collectors of Jesus' day uh, were Jews who worked for the Romans, and the Jews hated the Romans. They were Gentiles who had come in and taken their land. You know that piece of land that they're still fighting about 4,000 years later? That piece of land that they're still fighting about? That's the same land that the Romans came in and conquered. It's the same land that the Jews wanted then, the Jews want now, and that everybody seems to want. This tiny strip of desert uh, in the middle uh, of the Middle East. And so... The tax collectors worked for the Romans, the hated Romans. And the well, the way that the taxes worked in, the, in Rome was that the uh, the Romans had a flat tax. And everybody, uh, they, they had, this is the tax rate, and everybody paid the same rate. Um, but the problem is, is that if you were a tax collector, you would pay the Romans up front, and then you would levy the taxes from there on your own people. And so an unscrupulous tax collector would say, hey, I've already paid the taxes for all these people, now I get to charge what I want. And the tax collectors would do that. They would uh, assess your, your possessions, they would assess your property, they would assess whatever it is, your income, and then they would decide upon your tax rate. And if you were a poor Jew living in those days, and you had a heavy tax burden placed upon you, you would hate your tax collector too. Because they kept people in poverty. By taxing them and taxing them and taxing them. They would cheat their own people in order to pocket a few extra dollars. The more dishonest you were, the more money in your pocket. I mean, could you imagine? These are the people with whom Jesus was hanging. These are the people Jesus was hanging out with. And then you've got the sinners. The sinners. The ragtag group of people who were, again, social and religious outcasts. you got the sinners uh, who did not measure up. They did not meet the standards of the religious elite. Could you imagine religious people looking down their noses at other people? He said with sarcasm. Could you imagine religious people judging other people and condemning them for their sinful behavior? That's what they were doing. The religious elite looking down their noses at the people around them, the tax collectors and the quote-unquote sinners. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the religious elite of their day. They were the pastors, the priests, the preachers, the professors. They were the ones who were considered high and mighty, holier than thou, at least they considered among themselves. These were the good guys. They're the good guys, the ones you look up to, the ones you put on a pedestal, right? And they were very offended that Jesus hung out with and ate with the bad guys. And they were the bad guys. They were the sinners. They did bad things. That's why they're called sinners. They would mutter to themselves as they stood at a distance, casting their judging, condemning glances at the sinners. He even eats with them. Now, when you eat with someone, it is a sign of acceptance. It is a sign of welcoming. Now, when you sit down and you have a dinner with somebody, you invite someone over to your house. You say, come eat with me. It's a sign of welcome. It's a sign of acceptance. I accept you. I want to spend time with you. I want to eat with you. In those days, especially more so. food was kind of hard to come by. And so when you prepared enough food for a a feast with your friends, it's a way of saying, I'm glad you're my friend, and, and I want you to be my friend. And that's why Jesus was even called a friend of sinners. Because he was spending time with sinners. And they mocked him. This man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Doesn't he realize that they are the bad guys, and we're the good guys, and he should want to hang out with us? Why doesn't he do that? Well, Jesus doesn't give a direct answer. He doesn't say, "I'll tell you why I don't hang out with you. It's because you're whitewashed tombs." I'll tell you why I don't hang out with you. It's because you're holier than thou. I'll tell you why I don't hang out with you. Because you're so self-righteous that you can't even see past yourself. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he tells three parables: a parable of the lost sheep, a parable of the lost coin, and a parable of the prodigal son. We'll get to the prodigal son over the next few weeks, but today we're just going to focus on those, those two those first two stories. And these are not just three nice stories meant to evoke some kind of fuzzy emotion or feeling. No, they were told for a very specific reason. It was to challenge the point of view of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The final parable is Jesus' ultimate statement. Uh, About how uh, both groups are found in this parable The sinners and the religious elite And that's the parable of the prodigal son It's Jesus' final answer But that comes later For now we're just going to focus on How Jesus begins to challenge the Pharisees' attitudes And their categories of thought In the first two stories So the next blank on your outline is the lost things That's the next character The lost things Look at verses 4 and 5 and verse 8 Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And then look at verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? The first thing Jesus confronts is their categories about sin. Jesus confronts their categories about sin. In the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd goes out to find the sheep. The shepherd goes out and looks and searches for the sheep. Uh, Shepherds often traveled with other flocks. They traveled with other shepherds and other flocks, and they would join in with them. Uh, If the sheep went missing, the shepherd would leave his flock with the other flocks and the other shepherds in order to go and find the missing sheep. The missing sheep was important. The missing sheep was valuable. The shepherd was financially liable for the sheep that went missing. Uh, You know, and when you think about it, uh, sheep are really kind of dumb. They're not very bright animals. They'll walk right off a cliff without even knowing it till they hit the bottom. Then it's too late. <laughs> the sheep is helpless on its own. The sheep is helpless to be able to find itself when it's lost. The shepherd cares for his sheep and will leave the other sheep, will leave the flock in order to go find the, the lost, helpless sheep and then you have this woman who lost a coin and it may have been misplaced because she was careless uh it may have been um forgotten about uh but but whatever happened to the coin it was valuable enough that she had to turn her whole house upside down to find it uh she had 10 silver coins and these were kind of small silver coins each one worth about a day's wage and so she loses about a day's wage now imagine if you get paid every two weeks you work 10 days out of 14 you get paid every two weeks uh, and let's say you get sick and you miss a day of work but you're out of sick days and so they dock your pay that one day now if you're like me you'd be thinking what am I going to do I mean that's a whole day's worth of wages that's a whole day's pay I live paycheck to paycheck how am I going to make ends meet this this paycheck right and so this woman has lost a day's wage. Most likely this was um, her dowry that was paid when she got married. That This is what she brought with her to the marriage. And so she's lost something valuable and she's got to find it. And so she tears the house apart looking for this lost coin. You know, why does she do this? Why does she she search high and search low? Because she's uh, probably pretty poor and this Losing a day's wage is going to be a a deep financial burden on her family. Both the coin and both the sheep are incapable of finding their way home. They were lost. Lost in different ways. The sheep, for example, was lost because of its foolishness. The coin was lost perhaps because of carelessness. In the final parable, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the lost son, we see that the lost son is lost because of his willfulness. He willingly walks away from his family. And that's three categories of sin that we never even think about. There's foolishness, which is just ignorance. I didn't know it was wrong. I didn't know that it was sinful. I just, you know, did what I thought was right, and it turned out to be sin. Uh, Carelessness. Someone may have been uh, a product of a bad environment. Somebody didn't care enough to teach you right from wrong. Uh, and then there's willfulness, which is just pride and arrogance. Just saying, I know what's right, or I don't care what's right, I'm going to do what I want to do. So you have foolishness and ignorance, carelessness and, and a poor environment, and then you have willfulness, which is just willful, willfully sinning against God. I want to do what I want to do. Now we know we're all born into sin. We know that we're all sinners. Sometimes that sin is is is... Something that's inborn in us. Sometimes that sin is cultivated by others who treat us bad or have a bad influence in our lives. Or sin can be deepened and shaped by our choices. And Jesus explains that in these three parables. We're all sinners and we're all lost. Every single one of us at some point in our lives is a lost sinner. We're a lost sheep, a lost coin. You may have been shaped by sinful environments. Uh, You may have made sinful choices and you've lost and you've gotten lost and the bad news about being lost is that you're lost and being lost isn't any fun believe me how many of you ever gotten lost when driving guys how many of you ever gotten the look the do you know where you're going look the didn't we just pass that building five minutes ago look The, are you going to stop and ask for directions look? I hate that look. No, I have my phone and Android will tell me where to go. I don't care that there's yellow-orange cones and I can't see where I'm going. Being lost isn't any fun. And the bad news about being lost is that it's hard to get found. The bad news about sin is that sin has to be punished. And that's not any fun either. So we're lost, and we're in sin, but there is a way to be found, and there is a way to be forgiven, and there is a way to be saved. The last blank on your outline is the joyful seekers, the joyful seekers. Look at verses 6 and 7, and verses 9 and 10. About the shepherd, he says he goes home, then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And verses 9 and 10, and when she finds it, the coin, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Many people think of religion as humanity's search for God, that we're supposed to look for God, that we're supposed to seek after God, we're supposed to be searching for God. We're all on a spiritual journey, we're on some kind of spiritual quest, and many of the world's religions agree that if we search for God, we will find Him. And we go about this in different ways. You know, it could be the five pillars of Islam. If I, if I believe and I follow the five pillars, I'll find God. Or it could be the eightfold path of Buddhism, that if I uh, seek enlightenment and I follow these eight steps, then I will truly be enlightened and find some kind of salvation. Other religions all have the same basic idea of seeking after God and it, or seeking after enlightenment and obeying his rules, obeying his precepts. You know, the Jews of Jesus' day were the same way. They searched for God or at least they thought they were searching for God, they, they thought that they found Him, and they, and they thought that if they obeyed Him perfectly, they would be saved. The problem is, is that you know, they looked at the sinners around them, and they said, you're not doing it right. You don't have it all together. You're messing up too much. You don't have your act together enough. They said, look, we found God, and if you just try harder... You might find him too. After all, we did. But Christianity is very, very different. The gospel turns this idea on its head. The shepherd goes out to find the sheep. The shepherd goes out to seek and to save the lost sheep. The woman has to seek the coin because the coin can't look for her. Every other religion says that salvation is based on our efforts. We have to seek God. We have to find Him by our efforts. And if we try hard enough, well, maybe we'll find Him. But the cross says no. You can't do this on your own. You can't find God on your own efforts. Christianity says that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, had to come down from heaven into our world to seek us and to save us. Salvation is by God's grace It's a gift of His grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by our achievements. It's not about rules. It's not about earning your salvation by following them. Well, if you attend church an average of three times a month for your entire lifetime, you'll get to go to heaven. If you read your Bible for 15 minutes a day for your entire life, an average of 15 minutes a day, some of you got some work to do, um, then God will save you. Well, uh, If you tithe your paycheck faithfully 10% every Sunday, uh, at least the three Sundays you make on average per month, if you tithe your paycheck 10% every Sunday, then you'll be saved. And a lot of churches will tell you that, that it's by your efforts, it's by your achievements, that you've got to do these things and you'll be saved. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you believe in Jesus Christ, If you repent from your sins and you turn to him for forgiveness, if you'll confess your faith in him and be baptized, you will be saved. Baptism isn't something that you do. It's something that is done to you. It is an act of submission. It is an act of obedience. It is something that, that is done to you, not something that you can do for yourself. You know, one of the characteristics, one of the characteristics of these people, of these three parables, is the joy at finding lost things. The Pharisees did not see themselves as lost, so they despised lost sinners. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We lose the fact that we are sinners, that we've fallen short, that we've missed the mark. And we'll look at other people and go, what's wrong with those folks? Why can't they be like me? I got it together. I figured it out. I've got the answers. Well, if they just tried harder, if they just did a little better, if they read their Bible a little bit more, then they'd be better too. Why can't they be like me? Or go back to the list. I wouldn't want them in my church. See, the Pharisees did not see themselves as lost. So they despised the lost sinners of their day. But what does Jesus say? Heaven rejoices when lost people are found. And Jesus, as the great shepherd and seeker of the lost, came to die for our sins. He died on the cross to bring the lost home. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, because of the joy awaiting him, the joy of heaven, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. In other words, Jesus was so overjoyed at the thought of the lost being found that he went to the cross to demonstrate his love for lost sinners. That's the love that Jesus has for us. Dwight Moody, uh, the namesake of founder of Moody Bible Institute, was directing his Sunday school in Chicago, and one boy walked several miles to attend. And somebody asked him, why don't you go to a Sunday school closer to home? And his reply might have been used by the the tax collectors and sinners of Jesus' day. And this is what he said. He says, because they love a feller over there. Why do you walk several miles? Because they love a feller over there. Why don't you go to one closer to home? Because they love a feller over there. See what I'm saying? Jesus loved the lost so much that he came to find us. And now he has given that job to his people. To do what Jesus did. To seek after the lost. To love the lost. Our church, our church, GFCC, our church should be overflowing with love for lost sinners. Not filled with judgment or condemnation religious pride or arrogance. It is not our job to fix people It is not our job to make people acceptable to God Our job is to love people and welcome them into his family Welcome them into God's kingdom by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ sin is messy And we've made a mess of our lives. Every single one of us knows the mess we've made of our lives. Sin is messy, and it leaves us feeling guilty. It leaves us feeling ashamed. It leaves us feeling full of guilt and remorse and regret. And we feel terrible about ourselves because of the things that we know we've done. And the devil comes along and he accuses you. And he reminds you, do you remember when you did that? you remember when you did this? you remember when you did that? And we feel awful about ourselves. And what happens? We go to church and we're supposed to feel like loved and accepted and welcomed that Jesus loves us. And yet we feel terrible because we're worried that everyone's going to look at us and, and look down upon us and judge us and condemn us. And that's not our job. In John 3, 17, Jesus said uh, that the Son of Man came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He did not send His people into the world to condemn the world. That's not our job. God is our judge. You are not somebody's judge. I am not somebody's judge. That's not my job. My job is to tell you how to go to heaven. My job isn't to tell you that you're going to hell. I want to tell you how to get to heaven and you do that through jesus christ for he is the savior of the world and he is the lover of the world and he loves you so very much that he gave up his very life so that you could go to heaven so that i could go to heaven he died to make us part of his family to welcome us into his family to accept us into his family and people when they walk through the doors here on a sunday morning Feel the guilt and the weight of shame in their lives. Why would we want to make them feel worse? Why would we say you're not welcome here? Why would we ever do that? That's the same way as, that would be the same thing as Jesus saying, I don't want anything to do with you. Because we're his people. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives. We need to tell people you are welcome here. We're not trying to fix you. We're going to love you. And we're going to let the Holy Spirit fix you. We're going to let the Holy Spirit change you. God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. But He does the work of transformation. We do the work of love. That's our job. I read a story in, in the book, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And in the story he told of a woman living in Chicago who would prostitute her two-year-old daughter out to disgusting people who did vile things. And they asked her, why do you do this? I need money for drugs, and I need money for for my rent. I need money for my for my uh, power. And he said, Why don't you go to the Why didn't you go to the church for help? She said, Church. I feel bad enough as it is. Why would I want to feel any worse? Should not be that way. It just shouldn't be that way. People, when they come in this place on a Sunday morning, they should feel loved and welcomed and accepted. They are lost. And we need to remember that one time we were lost. At one point, we were sinners, lost and dying and on our way to hell. But Jesus came into our lives and He came into our hearts and He has changed us and transformed us and He has changed our destiny. So now that we are destined for home, we are destined for heaven. Our job is to make people feel so loved by God, and to, to be so loving to everyone who walks through our doors so that they will know, they will know that the lost can be found and that God is seeking after them and he wants to bring them home. He wants to bring them home. Dorothy said it best, there's no place like home. And this is Home, And I want people to know I want everybody to know that they can find a home here Because home is where the heart is and the heart is what jesus died for the heart is what jesus loves And we have to do the same thing heavenly father I pray that you would give us a, a heart for the lost a heart for lost sinners a heart for people who are far from you that you would give us a heart of love, that we would welcome and accept those who feel lost, those who feel like they are far from home, that they would find home with you. God, you have saved us. You have redeemed us. You have changed us. You have transformed us. You have transformed our lives. You have transformed our destinies. We have promises of hope and love and joy and peace, and I want to share that with everyone. I pray that the people who come here would sense your love and compassion. They would sense your uh, presence and they would know that this is home until we get to our true home. Thank you, Father God, for your forgiveness and your grace. I pray today for those who feel like they're far from home. I pray that they would find their way home that you would not give up on us that you would never stop seeking and never stop searching for the lost bring them home father God bring them home let them know that you love them and that they're welcome here thank you for welcoming us for sinners like us thank you in Jesus name